gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cameron Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton. The man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 54. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this week is another look at a piece of the Superman mythology from top to bottom. Our topic, Lois Lane. This may be the most important member of Superman's supporting cast, and this is an episode that I'm really excited about, but before we jump in full throttle, I have a few thoughts thanks to Mr. Michael Bailey. Uh, This week, I received a fairly large package. Well, my wife received it, since I wasn't home when UPS made their stop, but a package arrived at the Weeder Fortress of Solitude, and it held a batch of comics that I purchased from Michael. And I don't know if I have mentioned this on the show or any of my shows, but for the last few months, I've gotten back onto a mission that I started around the end of 2010. Uh, It's kind of been on hold for a while, but now I'm not, it's hard to say this uh, without being awkward, but I'm not usually one to drop a lot of personal stuff into my shows as far as my real life, what happens outside the microphone, unless it truly pertains to the show in this case. It does. Now, it's not because I think it's a bad thing to share those, but because I'm just very reserved about a a lot of the stuff that happens when the light on this here microphone is turned off. But I also don't talk about this because it's really easy to take what I'm about to say as being whiny or emo or trying to tell a sob story. So I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with the statement. And please take this statement to heart as you listen further. This is not a sad story. That's not the point of what I'm telling you. Um, In all honesty, it's a very positive story that does have sad parts, but it's a message 
that I, I've been thinking about this week about the importance of what I do here and what these floppy four-colored stories mean to me. But here it is. As a very young kid, I made a friend who became my best friend and eventually my brother. Through my friendship with him, I was welcomed into his family uh, as an honorary member, but they grew to watch over me, and eventually I became an official addition to the family. I became a part of their home, even with paperwork, so I was adopted in. I became a part of a family that wasn't perfect, but they were always there for me, and I never wanted for a roof over my head, clothes, food, emotional support, and, if I'm being honest, discipline. Now, I... My brother Jared and I were both comic fans. That's kind of where our friendship began way back when. This is where we bonded. And a lot of my favorite memories are of he and I making the walk to the comic shop or tracking down Toy Biz Marvel figures or just talking comics. Now in 1997, Jared was killed, which changed me completely. Now once again, this isn't about that tragedy. Don't get me wrong, I, it's sad, I, I miss him, but... It's about the redemption. This is why I bring this up. Because years later, I received Jared's comic collection. I inherited that, which was filled with a lot of broken runs of Spider-Man, Punisher, all kinds of 90s excellence. So one day I sat down and decided that I'm going to complete these runs and rebuild this collection, which it can come off as a little morbid or a little bit... You know, I don't know what the word would be, but it is actually really cathartic. It's really comforting in a lot of ways to, to do this mission. And this brings us to the centerpiece of my point. The smell of old newsprint brings back memories. The covers of these comics brought me back, and I also realized one of the best ways to explain why, thanks to the Raging Bullets podcast. Now here, as I was listening this week, they talked about the game Assassin's Creed. And the premise of that game is that the main character inherits memories of his ancestors, thanks to DNA strands that hold those. And this is the kind of the experience I have with comics. Looking through the comics that Michael sent me took me back to a time in a lot of ways. It just it was a time machine. And many comics give me the ability to tell you what I was going what I was doing or what was going on in my life when I bought that issue or when I read that. Now these eight by eleven issues, um, they hold pieces of us. They capture a snapshot whenever we read them or whenever we see them on the shelf. And they're like that DNA strand that holds those memories. And a little bit of the people we cared about, disliked, or even the weather of a Saturday afternoon when you're reading an issue of X-Men, that's contained within. And while I'm not going to place too much into this, that's um, a bit of an explanation or a call to arms as to why these characters and these books are important, at least from my point of view. And that brings me to another leg of my little three-part preamble. Fandom. Here is where I talk about Twilight and Twilight fans. Now, I'm not going to bash them. I'm not going to make fun of them. In fact, I'm going to praise them. Yes, I am praising Twilight fans. Here's why. For the last few years, they have putting, been putting fans like us to shame. Yes, I said it, and here's my case. In 2006, I got in line at 4 p.m., to see Superman Returns at midnight. Now, hanging out in line uh, for a midnight showing had become a bit of a tradition because it ensured some good seats, and it often led to a chance to make new friends or other fans, uh, with other fans, I should say. I was in the second spot in line behind a couple who had been there for roughly half an hour before I got there. 
Now, as the hours went on, the lines grew for the various auditoriums, and we filled the lobby of the multiplex, a bunch of Superman fans. Superman shirts were everywhere, which kind of meant that people were kind of stealing the fashion sense that I had created for myself, since I had a shirt, a Superman shirt for every day of the week. I could go for two weeks, about two and a half weeks without wearing the same shirt. But the thing is, nobody seemed to be a full-on fan, and I know that sounds judgmental, but here is kind of the the basis behind that. A local comic shop began asking trivia questions to the crowd for prizes, and I kept answering them because they were really, really simple, straightforward questions. For example, he put out the question, what color was Lana Lang's hair in the original comics? Which you would think would be a very simple question. Red right? However, this was the response of the crowd. Nothing but clueless faces imbued with Kristen Kruk's image. And this kind of repeated itself two years later for the Dark uh, Dark Knight Midnight showing in 2008. Speed ahead a bit. Summer of 2012, a Marvel movie marathon, a day of back-to-back movies from the original Iron Man to Captain America, with the capper being the midnight premiere of Avengers. I walked into the auditorium, I just walked in, and at best it was sporadically filled. Far from full capacity, maybe maybe a little 60% if I'm being generous. And as I'm talking to the people in the crowd from here on our breaks, most of the people were just there because they won tickets on the radio. And I verified that the other theater that was showing the marathon was also, meh. Compare that to November of this, the same year, 2012, when the final Twilight movie came out with its own marathon of movies. Now, this would be five movies. Fans camped out for over 24 hours to see all these movies at more than one theater. I worked next to the theater and they were camping out when I went to work. My wife went to another theater in in a neighboring town, sold out. Sold out showings at the marathon and all the midnight showings back to back, just wall to wall people. Let me also point you to the San Diego Comic Con. Twilight fans camped out in the convention hall overnight and through multiple panels throughout the day just to see the Twilight panel. And this was a panel that didn't even have the three major stars of the franchise. That, my friends, is hardcore. I don't care who you are. And these fans can tell you every small detail about the character and quote long passages from the book. Quote the movie verbatim. These fans are extreme, but I think it's extreme in a good way. And they are, as always, well, there's always exceptions. I guess that's a better way that there are people who are too extreme and otherwise. That's in any leg of fandom. So what is the point of this praise of Twilight fans? It is nothing short than a call to arms, folks. Because Twilight is a new phenomenon with a range of fan types. Now, Superman has been a phenomenon for over 75 years, and it has permeated every type of media imaginable. Fans range from young to old, male to female, and fans are able to approach this character and his cast from many, many eras and incarnations. And this June, Metropolis, Illinois will celebrate Superman with a four-day festival, as they do every year. My challenge to you, show your love for this character. Make the trip. Fill that little town's streets in a way they have never seen before. And right after that, a week later, The Man of Steel hits theaters in the first new take on the character on the big screen since 1978. A brand new Superman for a new generation. Fill those auditoriums, folks. 
Support this movie. Reserve your judgment until the final credits have finished rolling. Get your tickets in advance. Support this movie. As Superman fans, we are constantly forced to justify our fandom. We're constantly greeted with Batman's better, Spider-Man's better, Deadpool is better. Our hero was the original. Be proactive. Go to the quarter bins, get some random Superman comics, give them to people. What I'm saying is, step up your game, because Twilight fans are putting the Superman fans to shame. We can no longer hide and be that reserved Superman fan who doesn't go out and admit this is something that we love because it's quote-unquote uncool. Become a Superman apologist, copyright Michael Bailey, and make new Superman fans share what you love about the character And you know what? Go to the Superman homepage. Fill your heads with all of the free, abundant information on the Man of Steel. Listen to podcasts about Superman and seek out those issues of trades that catch your attention. And when you do that, if you like it, loan them out. Show your fandom. Wear it proud because you are a part of a huge, huge club of people. From Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lacey and Dale Hu in Britain to Scott Gardner and John Wilson in Florida, Michael Bailey in Georgia, Michael Kaiser and Jeffrey Taylor in California... Charlie Niemeyer, Michael Bradley, and myself in the Midwest, we're coast-to-coast, international, worldwide. There's no need to hide, because there is a group of us that will have your back. Be a fan, share the fandom, and fight the never-ending battle of sharing our fandom and showing it. And to that end, I'm going to move to a uh, a bit of a preface to today's topic, which is, of course, Lois Lane. This episode is important to me. Because in the same vein of what I was talking about, I was challenged this week. Because somebody said, what is the deal with Lois Lane? Couldn't Superman do better? Well, the gauntlet was thrown down. And I begin with a bit of a case, a very basic case, as to why Lois Lane is important. Beyond being the love interest, beyond being the only member of Superman's core supporting cast to make her debut alongside the Man of Steel, George Taylor being... A bit of an arguable point as far as his relevance to the core cast. She is the face that Superman sees when he rescues anyone. Now, I'm not saying that Superman has some kind of, of disorder where he literally literally sees her face, but more in spirit. While Lois is stereotypically thought of as being kidnap prone, constantly needing rescuing, this is actually a good thing. Now, one bit of writing trickery is to make the reader care about a character, a bit player at best, uh, an extra. The trick is to make them care, simply give them a name. For example, if you have uh, in an issue of Hulk, a soldier guarding a base that gets killed by the leader, and that's the full extent of the character's appearance, you name him Bill and suddenly your audience cares. Suddenly the reader feels bad for this character. Lois is that in consistent fashion times ten. If Brainiac is holding a random female hostage and Superman must save her, it's suspenseful. It's still entertaining. But if that person is Lois Lane, whom readers know, who readers have a connection with, then there's something personal at stake. And you have a genuine nail-biter. And that is Lois Lane at the core, at the very least. That's a starting point. At her best, she is the one person who understands Superman and Clark Kent in ways... The rest of the world just doesn't. She's a female force invading the misogynistic world of the Golden Age with grace and willpower, proving that a woman can indeed hold her own in a man's world. And you know what? She can even surpass them. It's easy 
to take the viewpoint that she spent her time upstaging Clark for stories, trying to prove he is Superman or get Superman to marry her. And that isn't exactly untrue. But what I want to do is look back at Lois Lane throughout the last 75 years, the different permutations, the good and the bad, and I want to make a case for her. With this uh, idea that she is the face as a starting point. Now, it's not the case of if she's important, but more of a case of how important she is to the mythology and why. So, that's the mission of the episode. I wanted to clarify it. Um, that's what I'm going to be doing after I come back from this break. I'm going to run a promo for Flash Legacies, and when I get back, it's time to roll up our sleeves as I take you back in time, and we explore the tale of fearless female reporter Lois Lane. I will be right back. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.lipson.com I'm Lois Lane. I'm a reporter on the Metropolis Daily Planet. This is my own story. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio and our look at Lois Lane. Now, I did an episode way back about uh, Lois and Clark's relationship. It was a very small episode, but this time she gets the full treatment as she should. Now, when Siegel and Schuster were developing the idea of what would become Superman, Lois Lane seemed to be part of the mix from very early on. Uh, rumor is a classmate of Siegel's named Lois Amster provided Siegel with the inspiration for the core of the character initially as well as her first name. However, it's not fully confirmed, but we have confirmed one thing, and that's the look of Lois is based on a model that the boys hired named Joanne Carter. Siegel and Schuster scraped up some money and had her pose for Schuster to capture this realistic image of what would become Lois Lane. And Joanne Carter would go on to be Siegel's second wife in later years, which adds an interesting bit to the idea of the Clark-Superman-Lois triangle. As Les Daniels points out in his book, Superman the Complete History, Lois and her relationship with Clark can be looked at as almost Superman playing a joke on her, if taken the wrong way. Because what he's doing, he's representing the idea of a meek, mild reporter, which she dismisses, while in reality he's the hunky, muscular man she desires and she just can't see it. And Siegel, actually being meek and mild, comes with the disdain and rejection that Lois would show to Superman he must have experienced that. So, looking at Siegel eventually marrying the very literal visual basis of Lois Lane, it kind of validates this idea that mild-mannered Clark Kent can end up with the feisty, beautiful woman. Uh, 
So while Carter formed the visual, Lois was really a product of Siegel being a staff member on his high school newspaper, The Torch, along with a little help from a screen reporter named Torchy Blaine. Wait a minute! You can't go in there, lady. There's been a holdup and a murder, too. You're wrong, boys. Holdups and murders are my meat. It'll be open sesame to swing wide all portals. My press card. Torchy Blaine is a star. The skipper. Now, listen, Torchy, I told you not to bother me. But I got something. Yeah, I know. You got school. Well, you had it coming to you. Well, if you won't listen, you won't listen. But you'll be hearing from me, Stevie. In headlines. Torchy Blaine was a feisty female reporter, played mostly by Glenda Farrell in a series of movies in the 30s and 40s. The character was, well, looking at it from a retroactive perspective, every bit the Lois Lane you think of. On top of the attitude of the character, she also gave Lois her name, inspired by another actress to play Torchy, Lola Lane. Now this part has been confirmed by both Jerry Siegel and Joanne Siegel. And when Action Comics number 1 dropped on newsstands in 1938, we met the product of this inspiration. And what a wonderful first impression she made, he said sarcastically, because it was not a good first impression. Because the first time we see Lois, she coldly blows Clark off for a date, just relentlessly breaks his little heart. Now later, that impression worsens when she dismisses Clark completely when he doesn't stand up for her on a date. Well, then she gets kidnapped and subsequently rescued by Superman. And here, in their first meeting, is a line that I love. Because Superman steps up to the frightened Lois, who has just seen him outrun a car and relentlessly shake the occupants out of said car. And he approaches Lois, and he simply says, You needn't be afraid. I won't harm you. And with this appearance comes kind of my first defense of Lois Lane. She presents a challenge for Superman that he can't use his vast powers to solve. Even in later years, when Superman could juggle planets, he can't make Lois notice mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent and see him for the decent man he is. He can't make her love him. No, 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 no. That stops there. I'm not going to put more Bonnie Raitt in here, even though I think she really is fantastic. But honestly, folks, it's true. There's no super kiss. There's no feat of fancy that will force Lois to look at Clark and say that this hard-working, honest man is the perfect match for her. Superman just doesn't have make Lois forget the demigod that is Superman vision. He can bust up Lex Luthor's robots all he wants, but he can't make this LL see the full picture. And yes, this mentality is what allows me to acknowledge and dismiss the idea that she works side-by-side with Clark, yet regularly gets swooped up into Superman's arms, and yet doesn't realize that the only difference between the two is a pair of glasses. If you want to kill Superman, I don't know why you're going to Smallville or why 1966. She doesn't know yet. Oh, this is good. This is really good. Um, Lois, did you know that in the future you're revered at the same level as Superman? Are there books about you, statues, an interactive game? 
You're even a breakfast cereal. Really? Yes. But as much as everybody loves you, there is one question that keeps coming up. How dumb was she? Here, I'll show you what I mean. Ed, uh... Look. I'm Clark Kent. No, I'm Superman. Mild-mannered reporter. Superhero. Hello? Duh! Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> and my final comment on that aspect is, it is ignorance. I'll admit that. But it is ignorance by way of hubris, not lack of intelligence. In fact, in the 1930s, a female reporter was extremely progressive. And Lois is a solid role model for career women of the time. And you know what? She still is in our time. So kind of looking at the first appearance of the Golden Age Lois Lane, who, by way of retcons, would become known as the Earth 2 Lois Lane, thanks to the introduction of the multiverse, uh, Side note, the multiverse allowed the Golden Age stories to be canon in a way of thinking, with the idea being that similar characters existed simultaneously in alternate Earths. So, the Earth-1 Superman was more or less the Silver Age Superman, and the Man of Steel from Action Comics number 1 was the Earth-2 Superman. Now, according to 2006's Infinite Crisis Secret Files and Origins, which I'm going to reference, but I'm also going to say take this with a grain of salt, this Lois Lane was born in Cleveland, Ohio to Sam and Ella Lane. When Clark feigns illness to pursue a new story and a villain in the story calling Dr. Superman from Action Comics 191, we learn that before going to work at the Daily Star or Daily Planet, your mileage may vary on which one is Golden Age canon, Lois took a course in nursing. She also had a sister named Lucy Tompkins, who uh, had a precocious daughter named Susie that would give Lois a series of escapades. As a reporter, Lois went through several iterations of the job, when she introduces herself to Underworld Kingpins in Superman Volume 1, Number 7, she says that she is the Daily Planet's sob sister, which goes along with her statement to Clark that she spends her days writing sob stories in Action Comics Number 1. This seems to imply she wrote sort of a Dear Abby-type column, as well as reporting hard news. And she went through her writing question and answer column phase, head of the Lost and Found Department, and even the lowliest job at the Daily Planet, weather editor. But it was her tenacity and fearless pursuit of the news story that eventually elevated the Earth to Lois Lane to headlining reporter. Of course, she was a bit method in her approach to coverage, oftentimes throwing herself into the subject in almost uh, darn near gonzo style of journalism. This would lead to stories with Lois climbing Mount Everest, becoming a trapeze artist, a private detective, and visiting the sunken city of Atlantis, all of which conveniently put Lois in danger, which Superman had to rescue her from. Now, before Barbie dolls had a huge house, cruise ship, careers as a doctor, flight attendant, etc., Lois Lane was the paragon of womanhood. When she debuted, it had only been 18 years since women were given the right to vote in the United States, and there were very few career women. Yet here was this surprisingly ubiquitous woman who, in a lot of ways, did everything her male counterparts could do, and more. And you know what? She looked good doing it. In literature... There have been prevalent female characters who serve to simply be a damsel in distress and not necessarily 
you know, the hero themselves, or a relevant bit of the story. In Arthurian legend, Guinevere was a princess who, well, queen, pardon me, who cheated on the king and brought a rift between the ruler and his first knight. She joined a convent over the affair. To quote Doc Holliday from Tombstone, In science fiction, Dale Arden was also a princess whom Flash simply had to rescue. Flash being Flash Gordon. Ah! But she wasn't really presented as having adventures of her own, nor a life beyond the male lead. Lois could boldly hold her own, and still be rescued by Superman, and therefore, my second point is, she was one of the first positive female role models in media, as well as especially in comics, despite the fact that she does get rescued quite a bit. Now, while some of the presentation can get muddied from time to time in the Golden Age, this Lois was a strong character who was fascinating in her own right beyond the lead character. Now, the Golden Age Lois Lane would eventually fall in love with Clark Kent and marry him in Action Comics 484, which was the 40th anniversary issue, which also boasted a cover by Jose Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. In the story, Lois doesn't discover that Superman and Clark Kent are one and the same until their honeymoon, which is also a shock to Superman since his memory had been wiped by a villain. With the secret revealed, Superman also held a ceremony to marry Lois in Kryptonian fashion, and the two would live happily ever after in Superman family backups, until the skies went red, and a crisis destroyed the multiverse, and the Golden Age Lois and Superman were led to a paradise dimension where they lived for many, many years. And the Golden Age Lois Lane would also leap off of the comic book page, and into another media, beginning with the major entertainment medium of the time, radio. Presenting Superman! Up in the sky, look! It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Superman, amazing, mysterious figure in blue costume and red cape who has appeared on Earth as the champion of the weak and the oppressed. The Adventures of Superman radio program debuted in February of 1940, beginning the tale of the Man of Steel with Jor-El on Krypton. In the seventh episode, Lois Lane made her radio debut. In these first three installments, she is voiced by radio performer Raleigh Bester, who was a Broadway performer who would go on to become, well, an advertising executive after her brief stint as Lois. Helen Choate briefly held the role before the now-familiar voice of Lois for many, many years and different mediums stepped up to the microphone. Joan Alexander was a model and actress from Minnesota who would go on to voice Lois Lane for over 1,600 episodes of The Adventures of Superman. Easily, Alexander's strong, determined depiction would influence every actress to take the role in future renditions. The radio show was another leg of the burgeoning Superman phenomenon, and it captured the imaginations of children everywhere, and if that wasn't enough exposure for Lois, the silver screen was next. The Fleischer Superman gave us our first shots of Lois moving in vibrant, full color on the screen, and Alexander continued to lend her voice to the character, and she would own the role through Filmation's new Adventures of Superman cartoon. Alexander would be a defining actor and an influence on the role of Lois Lane for decades, even as the Silver Age Lois Lane, well, would evolve. Or devolve, depending on how you look at it. Because the Silver Age Lois Lane, or Earth-1 Lois Lane, would have adventures that would become the barometer 
that would, in an unfortunate capacity, define the character as well. Like the 60s Batman TV series, Lois would be viewed through the lenses of the Silver Age antics of trying to either prove that Clark Kent was Superman or trick Superman into marrying her. I'm not sure what it says about this watered-down Lois that she got her own series in 1958 after a solo appearance in Showcase. Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane would debut following the first supporting cast solo title, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. And most of the early Lois stories centered on, well, trying to prove Clark is Superman or wooing Superman into marrying her, which does seem like a bit of a logic challenge to my idea here. This is a big chink in the armor of my defense. Because... My idea is she doesn't realize Clark is Superman because of pride. I've established that. But see, if she is so so devoted and so heavily suspects that Clark is Superman to the point that she constantly pursues trying to prove it, and she wants to marry Superman so badly, then, and I, I'm spitballing here, why doesn't she just allow Clark to court her and by that gain Superman? And I would be remiss if I didn't admit that the 50s and 60s Silver Age Lois set my point of feminist icon back a bit as well. So we're kind of taking blows to my defense here. Because after all, her career fell a distant second to competing with Lana Lang for Superman's affections. And then there was that guest appearance from Pat Boone. But Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane would also tackle some real-world issues, such as the time Lois used a machine to live as an African-American woman in issue 106. Well, this isn't going well for me. My defense is being set back a little bit, and the less said about that issue, the better. I mention this period because one of the biggest components of Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane was artist Kurt Schaffenberger, who drew nearly every issue up to 81. Schaffenberger's Lois became the model sheet for other artists, and is to Lois what Kurt Swan was to the Man of Steel, a definitive artist who put a very distinct stamp on the character. And... Lois Lane returned to the big screen, this time in Flesh and Blood. Noelle Neal became the first live-action Lois Lane when Columbia Pictures presented the theatrical serial Superman, starring Kirk Allen in the title role. Like Joan Alexander, Neal hailed from Minnesota and was a popular model. The rumor is that her pinups were some of the most popular amongst GIs in World War II, and in some rumors, she is second only to Betty Grable. Neil brought her no-nonsense characterization to the film, perfected from playing the character of high school reporter Betty Rogers in Sam Katzman's series of teen-ager comedies. Neil would play Lois in the follow-up serial Adam Man vs. Superman, but when Superman next stepped onto the screen, another actress would take the role. In 1951, Superman and the Mole Men was released theatrically as a tryout for a potential Superman TV series. Texas-born actress Phyllis Coates took on the role of Lois Lane, aside George Reeves as a barrel-chested Superman. Coates would play Lois a bit less plucky than Neil, and brought a fantastic scream to the feature. And piggybacking off of the movie, a production began on the television series The Adventures of Superman. An oil company blimp attempting to land at Metropolis Airfield in a high wind pulled 11 men aloft, clinging to the landing ropes. Ten dropped off safely, but one man is still hanging to a rope while the blimp cruises at a thousand feet above the field, unable to land. More to follow. You get down there right away, Lois. And you... But without a sponsor or a network, production was halted, and by the time the show did find a home and financing, Coates had committed to other projects, and in the second season, Noel Neal returned to the role for the remainder of the series' six seasons. Meanwhile, in the comics, the Silver Age faded, 
and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane was canceled, and her solo tales were folded into the anthology book Superman Family. With the dawning of the Bronze Age in the 1970s, Lois lost her dated Kurt Schaefenberger look. Gone were the pillbox hats and the Aquanet Bob haircut, and in came modern clothes and hairstyles of the time. And Lois returned to a career woman again, and became less interested in Superman's secret identity. This Lois had an ongoing, on-again, off-again romance with Superman that came to a head in Action Comics 542. Tired of Superman breaking their dates, and not content with his reasoning that he really can't fully commit because, well, he's Superman, Lois dumped the Man of Steel. Holy cow. Think about that for a moment. The Bronze Age Lois Lane basically told Superman to put up or shut up. Once again, Lois was a feminist icon and a strong female role model, but unlike the Golden Age, Lois, who was given a definitive canon ending to her long saga, the Lois of the Bronze Age was giving, well, really two potential endings. In 1980, Superman Family number 200 showed a potential future for all of the Superman family, including Jimmy Olsen becoming editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet after Perry White retired, and Jimmy's also married to Lois' sister, Lucy Lane. Kara Zor-El is now Superwoman, and Lois Lane and Clark Kent once again get married and have a daughter named Laura, who also has superpowers like her old man. Then there is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, in which Lois is married to a man named Jordan Elliott, who, in reality, is Superman. And they lived happily ever after in both versions. And as the Bronze Age crept to a very certain, very definite ending for the DC Universe, a new Lois Lane emerged. In 1978, the Ilya Salkine produced and Richard Donner directed Superman the Movie became the first major, big-budget Hollywood superhero movie. Christopher Reeve would wear the blue spandex while many auditioned for the role of Lois Lane, including Grease's Stockard Channing, Leslie Ann Warren of Clue, and Ann Archer, who would appear with Harrison Ford in the Jack Ryan movies. But it was Canadian-born actress Margot Kidder who won the role. Kidder's Lois was reminiscent in some ways of the Lois in the comics of the time, and while she wasn't immediately the most obvious choice, her chemistry with Christopher Reeve was unmistakable and underpinned the entire movie. Um, uh, oh, just how fast do you fly, by the way? Oh, I don't know, really. No, never actually, uh, you know, bothered to time myself. No? Say, why don't we find out? And how do you propose we do that? Take a ride with me? You mean I can fly? Well, actually, uh, I'd be handling the flying if that's okay. This is utterly fantastic. Oh, no, wait, wait a minute. Where are you going? Are you serious? Sure. Which sweater do you want to go? Okay. I don't need these. I need a sweater. It must be kind of cold. No, you'd be warm enough. Ready? Clark said that you're just a figment of somebody's imagination. Like Peter Pan. Lark, uh, who's that, your boyfriend? Clark? Oh, Clark. No, he's nothing. He's just a... Peter he, Pan, huh? Uh-huh. Peter Pan flew with children, Lois. In a fairy tale. Kidder and Reeve would return for three sequels, though Kidder's outspoken attitudes on the dismissal of Richard Donner after the first film resulted in her screen time in Superman 3 being severely cut. Her final bow as Lois Lane came in 1987 
with Superman 4 The Quest for Peace, which was a critical and financial failure, and ended that movie franchise. However, in the comics, change had occurred by then. In 1986, following the Golden Age Lois Lane's entrance into the Paradise Dimension with her husband, the Red Skies gathered and when they cleared, a crisis had reset everything. Now we had a new Superman with a new origin, new attitude, and that meant an all-new Lois Lane. And that is exactly where we will pick up next week in part two. And this was originally... It was on the docket, on the plans, as a single episode, but as I began working on it, as my case began unfolding, I realized that that simply wasn't going to happen. But before we go, let me recap where we have been, and my case for Lois Lane, just in case you are keeping notes. Point one, essentially she's a romantic lead. That's the straightforward one. Point two, she provides a face for Superman in the audience to identify with and brings a personal element to Superman's adventures. And let me now extend that point and make kind of a 2.5, which is a very technical point. She can also be the audience's eyes and ears. She is somebody who can receive exposition. She has a personal stake in the story, so that is a nice bridging. And yes, I will admit she does share this with other members of the supporting cast, so it's not the strongest point in my argument, but it is a point. Point three, she provides the challenge that many Superman detractors use as their primary weapon. Since the biggest argument is that Superman is all-powerful, how do you challenge him? Well, here's that counterpoint. He can't make Lois see the Superman in mild-mannered Clark Kent. And finally, she provided a feminist voice before there really was a feminist movement. She showed a female character in the predominantly male field of journalism. Furthermore, on that point, point 3.5 if you will, Barry Allen, the Silver Age Flash, had a girlfriend named Iris West who was a strong female reporter. The Silver Age Green Lantern's original paramour, Carol Ferris, was almost a carbon copy of Lois Lane in personality and in image. And Spider-Man's first girlfriend, Betty Brant, was a brunette who worked at a newspaper. Okay, that one's a little shaky, but not completely dismissed. But I do think comic fans can confidently say that Spidey and Gwen Stacy, Hulk and Betty Ross, the Adam and Jean Loring, Daredevil and Karen Page, they all followed the suit of Superman and Lois Lane. They formed the template for the comic book romance. So that is what I will leave you to ponder across the next six days or so, and next time the post-crisis Lois and why she is the crux of my defense of Lois Lane. Really, until then, I am J. David Weeder saying keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Oh how I wish I weren't in love with Superman A wasted life is all I've got with Superman To hope that it could ever be Is just a schoolgirl's fantasy Oh, is there no one else for me but Superman? This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. 
and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. <laughs>